0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned, I'm Preet Bharara.
1: My basic philosophy in writing about the Supreme Court has always been, this is your Supreme Court. I want people to learn about what happens. I want people to be intrigued by things. I want people to feel like they know these justices a little bit more and pay more attention to the rulings that will be coming soon as we head into June.
0: That's Joan Biskupic. While reporting on the highest court in the land for the past 30 years, Joan wrote four biographies of Supreme Court justices, including most recently, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. We discussed that third and most mysterious branch of government, why it deserves close attention, and why it's important to understand the people behind the robes. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Want to hear more analysis of news at the intersection of law, politics, and justice? Join the Cafe Insider community, our subscription service. You'll get a special podcast co-hosted by Ann Milgram and me, bonus clips of stay-tuned interviews, a weekly Insider newsletter, text alerts, and more. We all know there's no shortage of news these days, so become an Insider member today for just $5.99 per month or $49.99 for a year. Cafe Insider allows you to support our work so we can keep doing what we do. Visit cafe.com slash insider to learn more. That's cafe.com slash insider. So we're taping this on Wednesday morning, May 8th, at around 11 o'clock hour, and the battle lines are forming between the Congress and the executive branch on a lot of different grounds, but in particular, as I'm taping this, they're forming with respect to the House Judiciary Committee led by Jerry Nadler and the White House with an assist from William Barr, the attorney general. So the question on the table... And the fight that's been brewing for some time is over whether or not the Justice Department will provide the full unredacted Mueller report and a lot of underlying documentation. And the Justice Department has generally not been willing to do that. And so as I'm recording right now, the House Judiciary Committee is in session, and they're speechifying about various things. Is now contemplating a vote to hold the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, in contempt. As we've already discussed, it doesn't necessarily mean that much will happen. If they pursue criminal contempt for non-production of documents, that's not going to lead to any kind of prosecution. It never has before. Now, the administration, for its part, uh, has issued statements and there are letters flying back and forth between the Justice Department and the committee, asserting that the requests are overbroad and they haven't been negotiated in good faith. And just this morning, uh, before the House committee began meeting and having their discussion about the contempt proceeding, Attorney General William Barr wrote a letter to the president, which has been released essentially saying, well, not essentially saying, let me quote from it. I'm writing to request that you make a protective assertion of executive privilege with respect to Department of Justice documents recently subpoenaed by the Committee on the Judiciary of the House of Representatives. So the letter then goes on for some paragraphs to talk about the kinds of things that have been requested, the power of an administration to assert privilege because of sensitive intelligence sources and and methods, many reasons why those materials shouldn't be given to a committee. One of the things that appears to have annoyed the Justice Department, and this has happened before, is that Jerry Nadler's committee has decided uh, not only to request these documents and demand them and make a broad request in the, in the minds of the Justice Department folks, but also to seek a contempt vote, which you know people don't like. If you're held in contempt, you might not like that either. Eric Holder was held in contempt at one point over the non-production of documents relating to the Fast and Furious issue some years ago, and I remember being in the building, he didn't like it much either. And so, in this letter from Bill Barr, there's a specific reference to the committee's quote, abrupt resort to a contempt vote, notwithstanding ongoing negotiations about appropriate accommodation. So, as often happens in litigation, the two sides are posturing about who is being accommodating, who's being reasonable, who's overreaching, et cetera, et cetera, all basically setting the stage for a court battle. Another important thing from the Barr letter, for what it's worth, is that they are not taking the position that for all time, forever going forward, they will oppose the production of anything and everything requested by Jerry Nadler. They're a little bit more clever than that. That's why Bill Barr is asking the president to make what he's calling a protective assertion of executive privilege. And then he references in his letter, Barr's letter, uh, Bill Clinton and his fight with the Independent Council back in 1996. And he writes As with President Clinton's assertion in 1996, you would be making only a preliminary protective assertion of executive privilege designed to ensure your ability to make a final assertion if necessary over some or all of the subpoenaed material. So that makes it seem like, look, we're reasonable. You're going too fast. And let's see, let's have a period of negotiation and accommodation as happened before. And as we know, historically has happened with Bill Clinton. That all sounds sort of reasonable and nice and good, except from the perspective of Jerry Nadler, which I think is a reasonable perspective, every single sign coming from the White House and coming from the Justice Department is one of stonewalling. You don't just have the issue of the delay in providing the redacted Mueller report, you don't just have Bill Barr's seemingly misleading summaries. You have the president of the United States himself, who's the person who would assert the privilege, saying flatly in tweets and otherwise, and I'm paraphrasing here, all subpoenas should be fought. And he was talking about all sorts of areas of oversight, not just with respect to the Mueller report. That is a posture that is sort of a wartime posture that lots of commentators, and I agree with them, suggest is not just merely sort of picking and choosing the ways in which you're going to fight particular subpoenas over particular documents and particular witnesses, but an overbroad assertion of a stonewall tactic saying, you know what, for us politically, we're saying that Congress is overreaching. We're saying Congress is pursuing hoaxes. We're saying that this is over. And you have Mitch McConnell on the floor of the Senate this week in discussions about the Mueller investigation saying literally the words, case closed. So all the indicia from everywhere are that... The administration, notwithstanding some of the things said in this letter, is not going to be prepared to play ball. And the second thing going on here is the clock. As we've discussed, who knows what the level of accommodation is going to be, if any. My prediction is it's not going to be very much at all. But even if there's going to be that accommodation, there's an interest that the president may have and others may have in running out the clock as much as possible, maybe even up to and including past the election, depending on how the politics works out for various sides. And so one thing that I think is not illegitimate that Jerry Nadler is doing is trying to check the boxes procedurally so that they can get this in front of a court. You'll remember that some weeks ago, we talked about the issue of Jerry Nadler, basically upon assumption of the chairmanship, issued all these document requests to various parties, I think 81 of them. And people wondered, was that premature? And there's an argument that it was in a normal climate, but there's a good argument and maybe a better argument that it wasn't in the kind of climate we have now with only a year and a half left before the election. So again, it seems to me that both sides are Taking positions and are writing letters to make a record for the purpose of trying to show a court later who has been reasonable, who is not. I think on the president's side, there's an interest in delay. I think obviously on the Nadler side, there's an interest in speed, and we'll see what happens. This next question comes from Twitter user at Blue Poppy One. Blue Poppy One asks Hi, Preet, love your show, but how come you did not sign that letter from prosecutors? When I looked, well, over 400 had signed today, but did not see your name. Hashtag prosecutor's letter. Thanks, Blue Poppy, for your question. I think actually it's even more than that now. So a bunch of people have been asking me this question. Why did I not sign the prosecutor's letter? It's not because they don't agree with a lot of the things in it. Um, number one, I have said on the show and then said a lot of other places that I think what is laid out in volume two of the Mueller report relating to obstruction makes out a pretty good case for obstruction of justice. And but for the OLC opinion, many reasonable prosecutors would charge various counts of obstruction of justice against the president. I believe that. I've said that. And I continue to believe that. It's not my habit to sign onto letters like this, uh, even though I, I endorse largely what they're saying. And I think it's an important statement to be made. And it's important that it's a bipartisan letter or a statement made from people who are on both sides of the aisle, uh, who served ably in the Justice Department. And it's a powerful letter. And the power comes from lots and lots of people, you know, coming to the same conclusion about it. I'm fortunate enough to have other places where I can talk and speak in my own words as opposed to signing on to some letter written by other people I like I do on the podcast and I do on the Insider podcast and I do on CNN and in other places. So I don't want anybody to think that I don't believe the president obstructed justice. But even more importantly than that, I think, is that I believe Bob Mueller thinks the president obstructed justice. And so I would like to see what Mueller himself says on this question of why he didn't make a decision one way or the other, given my agreement with lots of commentators I've seen that when you read the way that the evidence is presented on obstruction, in an ordinary case, you would have expected at the end of that volume would have been a recommendation to prosecute. I note that there's some other folks too who also have their own platforms who have not signed on to the letter but have said things similar to this and seem to agree with the sentiments of the letter. Those include Chuck Rosenberg, Sally Yates, Jim Comey, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some others. But I applaud the letter. I think there's a lot of value in having lots of people from different sides of the aisle. And I hope it gets some attention. Hey, Preet. It's Sam from Vancouver. Uh, just wondering, what's the difference between telling a lie in public uh, to the media versus telling a lie under oath? Thanks. Congratulations on the book and love the podcast. Sam, thanks for your question. And that's one that's been you know circulating around the show and lots of other places over the last couple of years because there's been a lot of lying going on and a lot of demonstrable lying going on. The difference is one is a crime and one isn't. Lying to the media for what it's worth, may not be patriotic and American, but it is something, I'm not aware of any criminal law or any state or local law that makes it a crime, which is why you don't see people hauled off to prison when they make misstatements to the press. Depending on the circumstance and depending on what lie is told to the press, there could be potentially defamation or libel action brought against someone who's victimized by those lies. But other than that, it's not a crime. Whereas, as we've been discussing for a long time, and we've seen lots of cases along these lines brought by Bob Mueller and other folks, if you tell a lie knowingly, uh, that's material to a federal agent, like an FBI agent, that's a violation of 18 United States Code 1001. We've seen a lot of people charged with that kind of crime, including Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor. If you lie to Congress, that is also a crime. As we saw in the case of Michael Cohen, who pled guilty to lying to Congress, and there are various kinds of perjury for lying under oath in the court proceeding or some other kind of judicial proceeding. Now, over time, there have been some who have said that a sitting United States president owes a duty of honesty and candor to the public. Um, It has also been suggested, although I don't see much appetite for this these days, given what people have tolerated with respect to Donald Trump, that a president who lies to the public, lies to the media in a way that's demonstrable and clear on a repeated basis, that that could form a basis for an article of impeachment. I believe among other people, the notorious Ken Starr has suggested that. I don't expect that will become the basis for any article of impeachment, but it's worth thinking about and talking about and also complaining about. This next question comes in a tweet from Sally Snowflake. Good name. Question for at Preet Bharara. Would it be typical practice for special counsel and or U.S. attorneys such as SDNY to provide info slash evidence to state AGs to assist them in prosecution of state crimes? Hashtag askpreet. That's a good question. Uh, Without opining on any specific cases where that might have happened, Uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's ordinary practice. When I was the United States Attorney, there were occasions where we would investigate something, see if crimes had been committed, realize that there was not a high likelihood of being able to prove that a federal crime had been committed, but there was misconduct such that we should make a referral and share evidence with and maybe even hand over evidence to a sitting district attorney or sometimes the New York State Attorney General. Uh, and that's to make sure that you know we're all on the same page and protecting the public and holding people accountable. And just because we're not able to pursue something because a federal statute doesn't permit it, so long as it's in the interest of justice and it advances some public purpose, we would often share material. And the reverse is also true. I, I recite an entire matter in, in my book, in fact, where the Bronx DA's office uncovered a crime on the part of a sitting state assembly member, shared information about that with us, and then we worked together in a coordinated way to try to bring other public corruption prosecutions. So, yeah, it's sometimes the case that folks, if they can't bring something, are stingy about it, and they let it die, but on other occasions, sure. People who are state, federal, local prosecutors are supposed to be working on the same side for the same team, meaning the public, and so if it's appropriate to share information, they will, and I presume that would be the case here now. There there are circumstances in which the feds, namely a U.S. Attorney's Office, think that they can exclusively handle a case, and even though some other investigative agency or some other prosecutor's office also has an interest in it and want information, you know, there can be a negotiation over sharing it, but often, or sometimes at least, the feds will not want to share because they don't want other people messing up their case. So it depends on the circumstances. I would imagine in the cases that we're talking about here involving the special counsel and SDNY, if it's appropriate, they will certainly share. This question comes through an email from Kathy who writes, I did not hear anyone ask Barr what he would have done if Mueller had recommended that the president be indicted seemed an obvious question. Any guesses as to what he would have done? Thanks, love the podcast and the insider. Thanks, Kathy, for your question. Well, I suppose one of the reasons that people didn't ask the question is that I think the answer is fairly obvious given everything else. I mean, in this circumstance, Bob Mueller looks like he left the question about obstruction to Congress, and Bill Barr swooped in and said, even if I assume the fact is true set forth in the report, no crime here, no obstruction based on the law and the facts. And even though Bill Barr took great pains to say that his decision of essentially exoneration did not have to do with this Office of Legal Counsel interpretation that we keep talking about that says a sitting president cannot be indicted, I think Bill Barr would accept and accede to that mandate as well. So if for some reason Bob Mueller had decided not to, although he says very clearly he does, accept the conclusion by the Office of Legal Counsel from some years ago that a sitting president cannot be indicted and prosecuted, If he somehow decided otherwise and recommended prosecution, I think there might have been an even shorter response from Bill Barr saying, on the one hand, no, you can't do that because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion. And then he might have said in any event, even if Bob Mueller had not recommended that, we think that separate from the OLC opinion, for all these other reasons that we already know about, he shouldn't be prosecuted. I can say, though, it would have been an interesting conflagration, I think, in the public, in the media, and in the Congress, had Bob Mueller recommended something like that. My guest this week is Joan Biskupic, a journalist and Supreme Court biographer with a law degree and three decades of experience covering the judiciary. She was the Supreme Court correspondent for USA Today and The Washington Post, and is now a Supreme Court analyst at CNN. We talked about her new book on Chief Justice John Roberts, partisanship on the court, who is the smartest justice on the bench today, and which two justices used to date in college. That's coming up. Stay tuned. It's time for spring cleaning. Quip gives you an easy way to start with your brushing habits. As one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, Quip can help pave the way to a healthier mouth and mind in just two minutes, twice a day. Quip delivers new brush heads right to your door on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. And now, the whole family can get refreshed with Quip thanks to the new Kids Quip, which has the same two-minute timer and guiding pulses, along with kid-friendly features like a small brush head, watermelon anti-cavity toothpaste, and rubber grip handles in colors your little ones will love. That's delightful. That's why I love Quip. Over 1 million happy, healthy mouths do, too. Quip starts at just $25.00. And if you go to getquip.com slash Preet right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. For your free refill pack, just visit getquip.com slash Preet. Joan Biskupic, so glad to have you on the show. Very exciting for me.
1: Thanks, Preet. I'm so glad to be here.
0: So you have this book that's very interesting with an imposing picture of the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. It's called The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. I cannot be the first person to note that it must be true, given that you are one of nine, that that is why <laughs> you are deeply interested in the court. Am I correct?
1: You nailed it, Preet. That's it, Exactly. Just being the oldest of nine, it's sort of a chief justice kind of thing, don't you think? Yeah,
0: well, I mean, did you have that role?
1: <laughs> if you talk to any of the younger ones, they would probably say, but uh, thank God they're not <laughs> here with us today.
0: We're, we're, we're all sorts of decisions in life in your house decided on a 5-4 vote?
1: Yes, but you know the other thing that I have? I've got this personality trait where I almost treat everyone as if they're a younger sibling. So, <laughs> you know, I will say to you, Preet, do you have enough water with you right now? You, know, do you...
0: <laughs> you should just know I'm dressed very warmly. And I will not run with scissors.
1: (laughs) Then you're okay. Then the chief is happy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you had to emulate a chief justice from history, who would it be?
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, then I'll take for our time, I'll say Chief Justice Hughes, who had to navigate not just his own third branch, but work with Congress, specifically the Senate during the court packing threat and managed to help derail FDR's plan and made everyone happy.
0: Wow. I wasn't expecting that one. That was a very good well, substantive just... response to my, to, my, <laughs> to my very silly, off-the-cuff question. <laughs> um, you, are, you are indeed a quality guest. <laughs> Let's talk about this book. So This is not the first book you've written about Supreme Court justice. You've written about Sandra Day O'Connor and Antonin Scalia and Sonia Sotomayor. So how, how do you pick... Because you got a lot.
1: Well, I do. I do. And I started with uh, Justice O'Connor back in the early 2000s. I was intrigued by her, not just as the first woman on the court, but she was the only Former elected official on the bench during her whole tenure. And I had always covered politics pre, before I started covering law on the court. I was a political yeah. reporter. So I was interested in how this former Arizona legislator came to Washington and knew how to count votes. She knew how to work the back room. So I always thought of her as a politician on the court. So that intrigued me. But when I was doing research on her for that book that came out in 2005, I spent a lot of time in the Reagan files, and that got me interested in Justice Scalia, who I thought was a real manifestation of the Reagan movement. So I moved from her to him, and I was also intrigued by his first Italian-American heritage. Talk about uh, family dynamics. He was not only an only child. He was the only offspring of his generation. So he had this intriguing family history that he brought to the bench and was always the center of attention. And I had 12 on the record interviews with him that really helped me understand him. And then with Sonia Sotomayor, that was not a straight bio. That was more of a political history of how did she become the first Hispanic on the court? Because you remember all the competition through the years First, George H.W. Bush's administration, and then the Clinton administration, you know, different people jockeying, and then it becomes her, and I wanted to write about that. But through all this, I realized that there had never been a serious biography of John Roberts, and as you know, as well as anyone, we've had 45 presidents, but only 17 chief justices, so when all this turmoil with Donald Trump— is over, and it will be over someday, John Roberts will still be the chief justice appointed for life, and he, will pro- he could easily serve uh, two or three times as long as he's already served now, for,
0: right. which is 14 years. He was very young when he got appointed. So let me ask you about those other books for a second, and what I found interesting is how hard it is to get someone on the Supreme Court to talk, not just the justices themselves, who you are focusing on in a particular book, but the people around them, It's probably the most reserved, laconic branch of government. It's hard. There have been books from time to time that give us a window inside some of the decision making and the personalities on the court. But you had a particularly interesting time getting Antonin Scalia to talk.
1: Oh, yes. And I'll tell you that story because that turned out to be so much fun. I had been covering the court full time for many years. Uh, You know, I started at the Washington Post in 1992. So I went back, you know, I went back. Pretty far, and all these justices were familiar with my work through the years. And I went to Justice Scalia. I think it was roughly 2006 when I decided to do that book on him. He had helped me with the O'Connor book and we had had a relationship. And I said, I'm I'm going to be writing a biography of you now, Justice Scalia. And he said, well, that's that's (laughs) all well and good, but I'm not going to talk to you at all. I'm not going to talk to you at all. And you can talk to people in my family, friends, whomever you can get to talk, but I'm not going to talk to you. And I thought, you know, Fine. I never protest because I always know in the end they talk. So I started my research and I focused in on his father, who was fascinating. You would actually love the story of this man who came from Sicily, not knowing a word of English, and then went on to be a very distinguished professor of romance languages. Uh, He got a PhD at Columbia and he'd been outstanding in his field. And I discovered when he was first referred to in a New York Times story was 1934, when he won prestigious fellowship to go study in Florence and Rome, part of his graduate work. And I ran into Justice Scalia at a social event and he asked me how was my research going and I said thinking I was about to impress him and I found the very first time your father was referred to in the Times and you know all this immigration material and he said oh you found that fellowship you think that's really important did you know that I was conceived on that fellowship and he you know because <laughs> he was born in 36 and I thought I would be happily one-upped in that way we finished the conversation he wanted to know about what I had learned about various aunts and uncles and he called me the following Monday that was on on a Saturday. He calls me on a Monday and he says, what else did you learn? What did you learn about my Uncle Vince? It was like not Cousin Vinny, but Uncle Vince. So I went to see him and he was so excited about what I was learning about his family that he ended up giving me 12 on the record interviews. And I have to tell you, Preet, I know you know you have been in the offices of various important people who've sat with reporters and you yourself have sat with reporters over time. And I I would be so exhausted that I would be ending the interview, you know, after two (laughs) or three hours. But he was great.
0: So it's very interesting, right? So he he wouldn't talk to you at all and say he wouldn't talk to you. And then he gives you the ultimate literal origin story of of himself. Yes. And then he decided to talk to you at great length. Did you just sort of lob a question and he went on for hours? Or did you have to guide the conversation?
1: Well, I wanted to guide the conversation because I, I needed certain things. You know, I wanted definitely lots of childhood information. I wanted material that would bring him to life in in the book. But I also wanted to challenge him on things he had said, Uh, you know, the duck hunting trip with Dick Cheney that everyone remembers that did cause litigants to challenge his sitting on that case, Uh, you know, all sorts of things that I needed to ask him about. And the good thing with him is that he was ready for those questions. He wanted, he never said to me, why would you ask me that kind of question? He wanted to fight back. He was a lot of fun and he was so colorful. So, you know, I just let the tape recorder run, but you do want to eventually write the book. So you (laughs) need to cut off certain angles. So I did have to steer him, of course.
0: (laughs) Did you ever try to lick her up, job? To get them to talk more you.
1: Well, it, where I ran into Scalia at the social occasion, it was a wedding, and he was drinking, and I was happy to say to uh, my companion, you, "Would you want to get him another drink?" You know? <laughs> I <laughs> so.
0: see. I see your techniques, Joan. Hey, I this see.
1: was a man who really knew his wine. He knew his cigars. cigars. Yes, you know yeah. who I'm speaking of here.
0: If I remember correctly, and we'll cut this if I don't remember correctly because you have false memories at my age. (laughs) When I was working in the Senate and I was preparing for Supreme Court hearings, we'll talk about John Roberts that I participated in for Senator Schumer at the time, I went back and I watched literally 10 to 12 prior Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And one of the most interesting, maybe the most interesting, uh, it's sort of close with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's confirmation hearing, but Scalia's confirmation hearing where he introduces his family and is a great storyteller and very witty and very funny and interesting, whatever you think of his judicial rulings. Did he have a pipe or a cigar? You are at the table, You are remembering that so
1: well, so you don't have to cut that up. He had a pipe, and he actually at the judiciary Committee Yes, he was actually <laughs> the hearing. He was actually a smoker, and just as a quick aside, when the Reagan administration chose then Judge Scalia from the d c circuit. Robert Bork was in contention, and there were some questions about who might live longer, who was in better health. And Scalia was always a smoker, and he was like, oh, I'm not smoking now, just an occasional pipe.
0: Right. You know? Some people have suggested, and I wonder how you react to this, is it premature to write you know, a definitive biography of John Roberts? He's been on the court now almost 14 years. He's still a fairly young man at, I think, 63.
1: He just turned 64.
0: 64. Should you have waited? What kind of assessment can you make in the middle of someone's tenure? Like You yourself just said he could serve many, many, many more years. What was your thinking in doing this book now? And
1: that's a good question. And I get that especially from law students who are, you know, students of judicial biography, you know, people who are long gone. The chief justice himself said, this is too early. Give me time. And I approach these books not so much as a historian. And in fact, I'm not a historian, but as a as a journalist and as someone who, wants to explain the most powerful institutions in America and let people see how the Supreme Court is affecting their lives. He only got more important to the nation's law during my research. When I began this, uh, Justice Scalia was alive and Anthony Kennedy was the controlling, deciding vote. And now John Roberts is. So, Why him, even back then in late 2015, early 2016, when I decided to go for this? I thought, here is a person who very few people understand his role in American government. Very few people understand who John Roberts even is. He cast the deciding vote in the Affordable Care Act case in 2012. He wrote such an important ruling in the 2013 Shelby County versus Holder case. He is already doing so much, and I am at the scene to tell people about that. You know, you just talked about the access I've had to justices. I felt like I was uniquely positioned to do this, and then the most practical reason, Preet, is if I waited until John Roberts was long gone, I would be long gone too. (laughs) Sorry to say.
0: Um, You should quit the smoking. (laughs) One thing I want to ask you before we continue with John Roberts, do you ever hear from the justices after your book's published with a reaction or a review?
1: Uh, Yes, I do. Uh, Usually subtly because they don't want to like outright say anything. Whenever I would run into Justice O'Connor, she would say in that great Western twangy voice, well, if it isn't my author. (laughs) She, of course, had her own book. And then she once said to me, how are sales? And I knew that what she really cared about was whether I was eating into the sales of the lazy bee, which was her memoir. (laughs) And I, I said, trust me, Justice O'Connor, I am not eating into your sales at all, at all. Uh, and Justice Scalia, to his credit, even though there were plenty of things he did not like in that book, he kept seeing me and he was helpful in interviews uh, after that book came out in 2009. So you hear from them, but not as as directly. And on this one, I have already he- heard from other justices, but I haven't gotten a full assessment yet from my main subject.
0: Okay. Well, the other justices, they um, Happy unhappy, uh, quizzical?
1: Well, here's this. If I've heard from them, it means that they're okay. But I haven't heard... One person sent me a note that began with, this is off the record, but, you know, that kind of thing. So I can't really tell you what I've heard, but everything I've heard, I'm okay with. You know, it's not like I'm going back and thinking, oh, shoot, (laughs) oh, shoot, that went wrong.
0: This may be an odd question. Do you care that much? Is it important what they think?
1: no. Uh, well, you know, you don't want to be reckless about anything. But what I even said to the chief as I was going along, I'm not writing this book for me. I'm not writing it for you. I'm writing it because my my basic philosophy in writing about the Supreme Court has always been this is your Supreme Court. I want people to learn about what happens At the top of the third branch of government, I want people to be intrigued by things. I want people to feel like they know these justices a little bit more and pay more attention to the rulings that will be coming soon as we head into June.
0: Let's talk about the role of the chief justice. What does it matter who the chief justice is? A few minutes ago, you said that one reason why John Roberts became more important, even though he was already the chief, was that he then also became sort of the deciding vote. Some people call it the swing vote because Anthony Kennedy left the court. Is it more important to be the chief justice? or the swing vote if there is one on a court.
1: Probably in terms of the substance of the law, Anthony Kennedy proved that it's important to be the man or woman who gets to cast that that final fifth vote. But the Chief Justice's work is quite important. The The phrase, first among equals, has been used. But it, it's more than that. First of all, he runs the oral arguments. He runs the private conferences. And essentially, you know, sets the table as cases are about to be discussed. He describes the legal issue. He starts off the discussion. He is the holder of the so-called discuss list in which they decide which of the many, many, many petitions the court receives are even talked about in conference. All the other ones are automatically rejected. So he has a lot of power. And then when he's in the majority after a vote and he is more often than not in the majority, he decides who writes the opinion. He assigns that opinion.
0: There are a lot of lawyers who listen, but there are a lot who aren't. Once the vote is known and it's understood who's in the majority and who's in the minority on a particular question of law that's been presented to the court, why does it matter who writes the 30 or 40 or 80 or 100-something page opinion?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad we'll have a chance to tell people about that. What often matters as much or if not more to the bottom line vote in a case is the legal rationale. And that's what the author of the opinion starts to develop. Now, he or she has to have five votes for that. But the author is essentially setting the rules that will be then used in other cases, because the vote affects the outcome between the two individual litigants before the court at that time. But then the actual holding and how it's explained in the opinion is what lower court judges then read and apply to subsequent disputes across America.
0: Any particular case where you think that an assignment, either in Robert's tenure or otherwise, changed history or altered how the law was interpreted by courts?
1: Well, the very most important ones he's kept for himself. Think of, you know, the Affordable Care Act case. Think of Shelby County versus Holder.
0: You mentioned Shelby County a couple of times. Remind people what that case oh, was Oh, sure.
1: About. That's the one where in 2013, a five-justice conservative majority seriously restricted the reach of the 1965 Voting Rights Act particularly affected a provision of the law that had required certain states and municipalities that had a history of discrimination to get prior approval for any kind of election law changes just to ensure that they would not discriminate against African-Americans, Latinos, or other racial minorities. So it was sort of a, a safeguard uh, that let the Justice Department have a hand in what was happening out in the states, potentially discriminatory rules that would affect the franchise for minorities.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the life and turbulent times of John Roberts. Uh, as as we, you and I were discussing informally before we started taping, I worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee During the period when Sandra Day O'Connor announced her retirement and John Roberts was nominated first to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court. And then later that year, because Justice Rehnquist passed away over Labor Day weekend in 2005, my first year working in the Senate, then John Roberts was renominated to be the chief justice. So for me, it was kind of a crazy time. And so I got to research a lot about John Roberts and his writings and his career and everything else. And I remember thinking that this was a person who more than anyone else I had come across in my legal training and history, was on a glide path to a Supreme Court position. We often wondered if he was born wearing a robe. If ever there was a person who, not just by look and bearing, but also by trajectory and background and credential, he he seems sort of almost like a movie character for Supreme Court justice.
1: I, I agree. It seemed that he was hardwired from the start for success, he obviously did very well at every stage of his life from you know, kindergarten on, always very high grades, first in his class. Did you
0: look at his kindergarten uh, transcripts? Uh,
1: An aunt told me a wonderful story about going over to his house when he was, you know, just like five or six. And she walked in the door with her husband. And, and at that point in his life, Preet, he was known by Jackie. The mom says, look, Jackie got all A's. And the uncle pulls out a dollar bill. Now this was, this was truly like in 1961-ish. He was born in '55, and he was like you know five or six years old when he was living uh, near this family, and there he got you know a dollar bill, which was a ton of money back in the early '60s for anyone, let alone a little kid. And then he's first in his class at his boarding school, and then he does Harvard undergrad in three years, goes right into law school.
0: Before you get to that. You tell a story, which I think is amazing, that I did not know before, about how John Roberts himself, when I think he was about 13...
1: Oh, I love that letter. In fact, I found it in my research. I went to his prep school called La in northern Indiana. And I, when I arrived, this letter was under glass in the library. And John Roberts had written it on December 22, 1968, to the headmaster of this very elite all boys boarding school that had opened just a few years earlier in Laporte, Indiana. And he writes, Dear Mr. Moore, the main reason I would like to attend La Lumiere School is to get a better education. I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd. And I feel like the competition at La Lumiere will force me to work as hard as I can. Then he goes on to, you know, how much he's eager to do a lot of study and hard work. And then he closes with this line that I felt was so thematic for his life. I won't be content to get a good job by getting a good education. I want to get the best job by getting the best education.
0: 13 years old.
1: That's right. And a couple of people pre have said to me, well, don't you think like his mother wrote it? And I'm like, no, his mother no. did
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think even a mother might be abashed at writing such a letter. But what strikes me in that about his career and some of the other people also that you've covered and get to the court, obviously he's a young kid at the time, but to say I've always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd. Do you think that's still the case?
1: I do, and that's why you know we opened with the difference between the Chief Justice and the eight Associate Justices. You were at the scene in September 2005 when he suddenly breaks from the crowd of just being appointed to an Associate Justice seat, no slouch position for sure, and <laughs> yeah. is then named to be Chief Justice, And you hinted at this, but he was only 50 years old. He was the youngest chief justice in more than two centuries. And there he was, always able to separate himself from the crowd, so to speak, although, you know, neither of us could be part of that crowd.
0: How do you rank him in terms of ambition compared to the other justices? Are they all pretty much hardwired for success and incredibly ambitious? And then if I can indulge in a compound question, is that good or bad?
1: You know... Everyone you knew in law school was ambitious in various ways, right? I mean, these people are naturally ambitious, and you don't get to the Supreme Court really accidentally, although David Souter would sometimes bill himself that way, (laughs) Uh, you know, another Harvard grad and someone who certainly was quite accomplished in many ways uh, in his home state of New Hampshire before he was tapped by George H.W. Bush. But, you know, they're all ambitious, and I think of ambition as something that's plenty good in many ways. The one thing about John Roberts is he doesn't want to be seen as ambitious. He tended to resist questions about strategy and being tactical. I think that you know there's some people who feel like it can be nasty business, but face it, Washington and New York are filled with people who plotted out their life and said at age 13, perhaps not that they want to stay ahead of the crowd, but they might have felt that way.
0: Did he face, based on your research, any setback?
1: That was exactly the kind of question I was always asking people. When did things go wrong for John Roberts, essentially? And the event that probably comes closest to that occurred in 1992. On January 27th, 1992, when he had just turned 37 years old, George H.W. Bush nominated him for the D.C. Circuit, a powerful stepping stone to the Supreme Court. And John Roberts didn't really have a very high profile at the time. He was a deputy solicitor general. He had already been in the Reagan administration. And as you learned from your work for Senator Schumer, he had written many memos showing his conservative hand, but those weren't public at the time. He had a, a, a reputation of not being a really strong, rigid conservative when George H.W. Bush nominated him, but enough of the staff of then Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Joe Biden wanted to resist John Roberts. They knew they knew what he was doing behind the scenes, even if the greater public didn't know much about his reputation, and they stalled. Chairman Biden then stalled uh, his nomination for the D.C. Circuit. Ken Starr, who was then the Solicitor General, went personally to talk to Chairman Biden, but he could just not shake loose the John Roberts nomination. He never got a hearing. And what everyone inside that first Bush administration was saying, don't worry, he'll get a second term, <laughs> you'll still yeah. be nominated. But we know what happened in November of 1992, Bill Clinton wins, uh, John Roberts, he leaves the administration, he goes into private practice. But it was the best thing for him. It helped him broaden his portfolio. He didn't have a, a huge record then when a Supreme Court seat came open and was able to easily get on deck for that. So that would be the that would be the one thing preed. Everybody said it was very hard for him then he went as i said into a very lucrative private practice.
0: People may be wondering at this point you have two lawyers uh, who are talking a lot about the background and rearing of a person and their personality and their ambition and we're not talking about legal philosophy yet there's a reason for that. I'm of the view that these life experiences help shape you and help shape how you think about the law and your decision making and at the end of the day as I write in my own book the law is done not just based on statute but based on the people who are responsible for enforcing the laws and interpreting the law so this all seems highly relevant to me the other thing I was struck by as a staffer assessing him was how congenial he presented himself to be throughout his professional career and so and, and I'm not saying this in a in a cynical way really unless you want to Describe it this way, you couldn't meet a person, Democrat or Republican, my recollection is, in Washington, who had come across John Roberts in private practice as a litigant or as a a member of the court or a colleague, whether they were on his side in a case or against him in a case, who didn't say, what a wonderful gentleman and how congenial and lovely and only positive things were said about him as a person. Is that what you found also?
1: Well, here's... (laughs) here's something that happened. Before I even started on this book, I started picking up strands while I was working on the earlier books about how dismissive he could be in certain situations of colleagues. And I started noticing some tensions. But I was like you, thinking he's so outwardly courteous, so pleasant. You know, I had known him since early 1989 when I started covering the court first for congressional quarterly before I went to the washington post so i was i was covering the hill mostly but i was covering the court and his very first argument before the court was in january of 1989 so i my work was simultaneous to his and so i had known him and i i always thought he was so as you say so pleasant and he's always been excellent at structured settings of speeches but i was picking up these strands of dissatisfaction on on a bit of a personal level and it turns out that there is some distrust among the colleagues. There's contrasting personal styles. Face it, they're all appointed for life. They all grew up, you know, thinking maybe they were the smartest person in the room. And then he comes in and says, no, 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 Now Let's get this all straight. He somehow conveys that uh, uh, as chief justice, he's, he's going to take a a larger role as as the leader here. Right. I think that it could be expected that any tensions would emerge. And then here's one thing that probably you or I never thought about back in 2005. He was succeeding William Rehnquist, who, no matter what you thought about his political and conservative approach to cases, was very much loved by judges, justices on both sides. Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote him the most Wonderful letters that I obtained through my research, and she she always talked about my chief. In fact, John Roberts would say, "I I wish you would stop referring to my chief for Rehnquist." You know,
0: so. (laughs) And Justice O'Connor and Rehnquist, once upon a time. Uh, Were an item.
1: They were. They dated when they were at Stanford Law School. So, you know, he had had 14 years as an associate justice before he was elevated in 1986. So he knew how to work with all of these associate justices in a way that John Roberts had only observed from the outside.
0: Just to clarify one thing on, on this issue of the strains you said you discovered where the chief justice, John Roberts, might have acted in a sort of dismissive way. Did you find those strains only after he became the chief justice? Or are you saying that you also heard those kinds of things during the time period before he was confirmed as a justice? Because that's what I was impressed by. Some people cynically would say, well, he's prepared his whole life. And you know people like this in Washington. I'm not saying he's one of them. they prepared their whole life to make sure that they have never offended anyone. They've been cordial and lovely to people, and in particular people on the other side of the aisle, because there before the grace of God go I as a nominee to something, and as you know, the way these things work in Washington, you want to have lots of people on both sides of the aisle saying good things about you. And another person comes to mind along these lines, and his name is Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, And I knew, you know, sort of indirectly as well through mutual friends. Did your research reveal any of that? Oh, you draw
1: a really nice distinction in terms of what I'm talking about, interpersonal style. No, John Roberts never made an enemy who mattered. (laughs) <laughs> Seriously.
0: <laughs> Wait, say that again. That's very important.
1: He never made an enemy who mattered. I, I I actually don't think there's that much of an edge to that. I think that's just a very smart. Uh, everyone talked about how he could always see three or four steps out, the only thing I would remind you of, and it's a small thing, and of course it dates back when he was in his 20s, when he wrote a lot of those memos for Ronald Reagan and for William French Smith that you and I both had to delve through when we were both involved in the 2005 nomination, where you see... About
0: abortion and other things, right?
1: Right. And you see a little bit more of his, um, uh, for lack of a... (laughs) Well, for for probably the most precise word when you're talking about somebody who's in his twenties, the snarkiness that comes through with some of those, uh, where he's he's dismissive of. Um, some members of Congress, and he's seeing the administration as being sort of embattled against its adversaries at the time over many racial and culture war issues. Now, you know, again, that was a man in his 20s. But I think that, you know, I want to make sure that your listeners understand, I do think John Roberts is very courteous and pleasant. I don't think he's putting that on at all. I think that what we're talking about is, you know, stuff that comes out in tense situations, that's natural to a lot of interpersonal rivalries and animosities that, that you're just going to have when people are thrown together for life, and he's also an upper midwesterner. He ended up growing up in Indiana before he sullied himself at Harvard. But he's—I think—he comes by it naturally.
0: So let's talk about the confirmation hearing, 2005. Um, he ended up getting half the Democratic caucus to vote for him, and I remember the atmosphere being very charged, and sort of the, the beginning of these judicial wars between the Democrats and Republicans. It seems almost quaint now. Uh, They were pretty charged at the time. They've only gotten worse in the years since. And it was the first vacancy on the Supreme Court in 11 years. So, you know, most senators, I think, had never been part of a confirmation hearing process. And there was a lot of discussion and debate about whether or not the process was a good one or not. You have written, and you're not unique in this opinion, that Roberts performed extremely well at the hearing. What do you think accounts for that?
1: Oh, he was so good. Well, first of all, he had argued 39 times before the Supreme Court. His preparation was flawless. Uh, he knew how to handle any kind of question. Highly intelligent. He's got a very quick wit, as uh, we observed earlier, about the way he could parry certain questions, turn them into soft jokes uh he showed you know a nice sense of humor deeply steeped in the law he understands cases he could surpass whatever senators questions you know about any kind of law with his own understanding of a legal ruling he works at it he works at it he works at it and he leaves nothing to chance i uh, note in the book that when he would argue before the supreme court he would write at the top of his legal pad Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, just in case he froze. (laughs) One thing we should tell people, because I found this part of him incredibly inspiring, has had to conquer... A lot of anxiety and and nerves, and I'm using those words uh, colloquially. I'm not saying anything medical here. I'm just saying that he'd have a sick stomach a lot in college. His hands would shake uncontrollably when he was an adult preparing to argue before the justices. But once he stepped to the lectern, he was always able to control that. I find that so admirable because public speaking is difficult and being in that hot seat in front of all the senators firing these questions at him, he was able to be so smooth. And you're exactly right that nominees since John Roberts, Republican and Democrat, have all been told, watch the tapes.
0: Right. And I sat there through all of them. And I think he just grew stronger in terms of how he answered questions and how disarming he was. Do you think today someone like John Roberts, very difficult and complicated counterfactual? But do you think the days of of even twenty two votes from the other party are gone? No matter who you are,
1: I, I do. Unless it's a senator as a as a, a nominee, you mentioned the the symmetry of his splitting the Democrats for and against him. But you'll probably also remember, Preet, because I know your memory so good on this. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Patrick Leahy voted for him, but Senate Minority Leader Reid didn't. Actually, it was, uh, Leahy was uh, the ranking ranking member, so he, he even right. split the leadership. Pat Leahy on one side and Harry Reid on the other.
0: Yeah, it was a very interesting time and very interesting votes because there were certain people who were known as iconic liberals in the Senate who voted for like Russ Feingold.
1: I was wondering if you would say him, because Russ Feingold actually gave him a hard time during the hearings on many things, but then ended up voting for him. I don't remember, right? They might have been at Harvard together or whatever. But yes, there was a vote, certainly, that was a bit of a, a surprise. But I have to tell you that John Roberts has said to many audiences, when he would meet with senators, they all went so well that he was actually led to believe he might get more votes, but in the end, he, <laughs> he didn't.
0: <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting time. And a lot of people voted in a way that you wouldn't expect. And I think people are much more set, not only in, in their ways about how they think about the votes, but also presidents are much more set on who they're going to nominate. And there are, I think, fewer surprises that you'll see going forward. I want to talk about judicial philosophy. So we spent all this time talking about personality and style a little bit, background and growing up and ambition, none of which really relate to the law, but I think they're actually very very important and contribute to the whole and to the resulting judicial personality. What is judicial philosophy and what is John Roberts? judicial philosophy?
1: Well, judicial philosophy is the approach that a jurist of any federal court would take to a case. You know, are you going to be more conservative, more liberal, and breathing more of an expansive view into the U.S. Constitution or to a federal statute? Uh, Justice Scalia, one of the earlier subjects we talked about, took the original originalist point of view that you look to what were the intentions of the, the framers of the Constitution. So right now, why don't we just contrast it with uh, Justice Stephen Breyer? who's written a lot, uh, both on and off the court, about his philosophy of trying to more expansively read the rights and, and liberties in the Constitution. John Roberts takes a much more of a conservative approach. He has deep conservative roots in the Republican Party, having worked for Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, and then being appointed by George W. Bush. Ideology, in terms of judicial approach, is supposed to be separate from your politics, and he would say it definitely is, but it's still a conservative approach. You don't want to go further than the Constitution would allow or read more into a federal statute than what Congress apparently intended in it, that statute. Now. He sent some mixed signals on congressional legislation. When he interpreted the Voting Rights Act, reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, he rejected what many members of Congress felt was their interpretation of what they wanted in that law. But then when he cast the deciding vote to uphold the Affordable Care Act in 2013, he said that the reason he was doing it is because if there's any way that an act of Congress can be upheld, it should be upheld.
0: You wrote somewhere in the book about this issue of outlook that John Roberts is something of an institutionalist. He cares about the institution of the courts generally and the Supreme Court specifically. But at various turns, you know, he did not shed partisan thinking. What does that mean?
1: Well, I would look to some of the race cases and I'd look to the differences of the conservative justices and how they voted. There was a, a very important school integration case that was decided in 2007, the name of it was Parents Involved versus Seattle School District Number 1, I think it was. And in that, the justices were called upon to interpret you know, just what is in the Constitution, what was in Brown v. Board of Education from uh, 1954 about school integration plans and classifying students based on race. And there were two sets of programs before the justices, one from Louisville, Kentucky, and one from Seattle, Washington, in which school district officials we're looking at the racial makeup of the district for more integration, to try to fight you know, housing patterns, people moving out of the city, perhaps, and having pockets of racial minorities and pockets of whites. And they were trying to figure out ways to not lose the integration gains that had been made in the 70s and 80s. And John Roberts interpreted Brown v. Board of Education to forbid that and that idea that school integration plans should be regarded in the same way as school segregation was something that Justice Anthony Kennedy, a fellow conservative, wanted to affirmatively separate himself from from John Roberts on. I think that was an instance where John Roberts took a view that many rightly argued was a more radical rather than institutionalist view of what the principle of Brown v. Board stood for. He's so strong about his racial view that remedies do more harm than good, that that's something that has really countered the institutionalist view. For example, on he famously said the way to stop discrimination based on race is to stop discriminating based on race. And that sounds well and good, but when it comes right down to how prior courts have read the equal protection guarantees of the 14th Amendment, it's that Universities that government institutions can look at race in certain discrete situations, whether it be for diversity on college campuses or elsewhere.
0: When you say institutionalist, what do you mean by that?
1: Someone who ha- is is interested in protecting the the reputation and the stature of the institution, protecting the norms of the institution. He has uh, said that um, when he thinks about past chief justices. And considers his own potential legacy. He said, you probably won't be regarded as the great Chief Justice John Marshall, but you certainly don't want to be regarded as Roger Taney, who, of course, (laughs) was the author of The Dred Scott Opinion. So he's interested in how history will regard him and how history will regard the Supreme Court during his tenure. I should just note that uh, before he decided to go to law school, he actually thought he was going to get a Ph.D. in history. And he has remained a real student of history.
0: And always wanted to stay ahead of the crowd, as as we discussed. You mentioned the Affordable Care Act vote, and that's one that obviously had a lot of impact that you can see on people's lives, unlike some other cases where it takes a while for people to understand what has changed in the country with respect to how they go about taking care of themselves or working or anything else. And it's also the subject, obviously, of a lot of political debate and discussion. Conservatives not happy with John Roberts because he cast a deciding vote upholding parts of the Affordable Care Act. And you describe what's fascinating that not everyone appreciates that John Roberts didn't come sort of out of the box knowing that he was going to vote a particular way. There was a bit of churn in his thinking and how he was going to vote.
1: That's exactly right. I discovered in researching the chief that he changed course multiple times. He was initially part of a majority of justices who voted to strike down the individual insurance mandate. You know, the one that, you know, that's what we called the requirement uh, that everybody had to have health insurance. That was the heart of the law. So he votes to strike that down, but then he also votes to uphold the expansion of Medicaid for people near the poverty line. And over two months of negotiations that took a lot of effort on my part to find out about, uh, he shifted on both. And the final tallies were 5-4, to uphold the individual mandate, which was a, a reversal, and seven to two to curtail the Medicaid plan. And that came after only weeks of negotiations and trade offs among the justices that John Roberts himself orchestrated.
0: So, what the heck was going on there?
1: I think there, it comes down to several factors. Let's remind everyone what was going on in 2012. We were in an election year. Every one of the Republican candidates for president was saying, you know, that he or she would repeal the law. Uh, it was a very tense time. It was President Barack Obama's signature domestic achievement. There was so much in the air politically. But then also, I think John Roberts was also mindful of the fact that this had been a long time coming for the health industry, which he had represented in his private practice in many ways. And I also think that in the end, part of his move might have been concern for, we just talked about his institutionalist mindset, worries about the legitimacy and legacy of the Supreme Court, his own legitimacy and legacy, and I do say perhaps he might have had a change of heart about Congress's taxing power. Although that was never voted on in conference. Pre, mm-hmm. I use yep. the word conference just because that's what they call their private meetings. That was never even put to a vote. He, on his own, when he was writing the, the opinion, then relied on Congress's taxing power. The original vote was on Congress's power under the uh, Commerce Clause.
0: You use various terms to describe that thought process, including caring about the reputation of the institution and other sort of things that sound nice. There's, there's a word that in this context is, uh, is pejorative, is negative, and that is political. Was that a political decision?
1: I do say that through at least one lens, you could, you could definitely have said it was a political decision. And I, I'd use political the way I started this conversation, referring to Justice O'Connor as somebody who politically knew how to maneuver for votes, uh, having been a politician herself. Yes, I think that, well... This is what I definitely say, is that it certainly added a dimension to a man who always insisted that he decided cases based only on the law, that he was only calling balls and strikes. I think other things definitely came into the calculation here. You know, plenty of people think that he did a lot of good with this, that it was an important decision for the Supreme Court not to have struck down the individual mandate and to have saved the law. But it wasn't what it appeared to be on the surface, is is my main point, that there were many other things going on.
0: Is the court political? And if so, is that a criticism of the court or is it necessarily political in some ways?
1: I think it's always going to be political in some ways. First of all, everyone gets there based on a political process. And now, especially, individuals are chosen through a very politicized process process. Uh, as we saw with Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, certainly you know the Federalist Society worked closely with the Trump administration to make their choices, and then both sides girded for political battle. And John Roberts himself has said out loud that he worries that when people see a justice ascend the bench after such a political process, that people will necessarily think that the justices are political. And they're naturally going to have a some political antenna up, but I don't know if that's always going to be such a bad thing because, you know, the court has to operate within a, a broader context. Some people would say that taking a more liberal ideology to the interpretation of the Constitution was also influenced by our political atmosphere. So there's politics and then there's politics.
0: Well, talking about politics and the rhetorical battles in politics that have been going on, it's very seldom that I go someplace and I don't get asked a question about what the current president, Donald Trump, says about judges, you know, calling out particular judges by name. And one would imagine that that over time, you know, that takes a toll on members of the bench. And the top judge in the federal system is obviously the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, about whom you've written a book. And he's quiet, quiet, quiet. People like John Roberts tend not to speak outside of the annual report he does or the opinions that he writes and I guess occasional talks. But those are fairly minimal. And then uh, right before your deadline for the book, I know it was a difficult book to write for a lot of reasons, including there kept being news that affected your your writing and affected issues that you were discussing in the book. But I think one of the last things that happened in the news right before your editors said you need to stop writing was the statement that John Roberts made in a sort of um, clear rebuke to the president. Remind folks what John Roberts said, and and what do you think motivated it, and was it a good idea?
1: Your memory is exactly right. Of uh, That was like the last thing I got into the book, and as a fellow author, I know you also had a book come out in March. You know <laughs> yeah. what? how tough the timetable was for all of us. Okay, so it's November. It's right before Thanksgiving, and President Donald Trump has derided a judge's ruling by saying, oh, that was just an Obama judge. John Roberts issues this statement. First to the Associated Press and then to all of us that says there is no such thing as an Obama judge, no Clinton judge, no Bush judge, no Trump judge. We're all judges trying to do the right thing. I'm paraphrasing of course, but his point was you can't automatically define a judge by the president who appointed him or her when I immediately, like you, went on TV to talk about that, a couple times an anchor would say, but don't you always say who appointed these justices? You know, you're always making a point about (laughs) it. And I say, yes. And I'll tell you what the difference is. President Trump was essentially asserting that a jurist is going to automatically vote for him, vote along his interests because of having been appointed by Donald Trump or vote against his interests automatically because uh, he or she was appointed by... President Obama. John Roberts, of course, wanted to take all politics out of it, not just that it was finally time to say something against President Trump, because I think he's worried that that's infecting the public mind. Just as you said, that people are believing that the court is too political and that it should just be regarded as another branch. And John Roberts is always telling audiences, the third branch is different. We're not elected we are not political the way the executive and legislative branches are. I think he's not just worried about what conservatives are thinking and how much they might be buying into what President Trump is saying. I think he's also worried about some of the talk we've had from progressives about packing the court. So I think he's trying to put the Supreme Court on a higher plane and protect it from the political turmoil we're experiencing right now.
0: It was not, you know, he didn't put it in as nuanced a way as you did. He, he, he was sort of a version of Obama's, there's no red America, there's no blue America, there's the United States of America, which has a soaring rhetorical value when delivered from a podium, maybe in a large convention hall. It didn't ring quite as true given the complexities that you describe, because it is the case that people talk about who nominated someone, and it is also the case, as we've discussed at some length here, that there is some predictability with respect to someone's judicial philosophy and ideology, depending on who appointed them. And that's why presidents are less likely to make mistakes, like some conservatives say was made with David Souter. But your point is a good one. And that is, it doesn't necessarily have to be so, as we saw with John Roberts and the Affordable Care Act. But I think, you know, Roberts in a way overstated it. And I wonder if if that helped the court or not. And if his audience was his brothers and sisters on courts throughout the country, or if it was to the public or it was to both?
1: I think to both because I do know that several lower court judges were urging him to say something because they're the ones who are getting most of the flack from the president. Right. You know, Because they're the ones that the president thinks are against him where he has asserted, you know, just wait till things get to the Supreme Court. That's when I'll get my way. So uh, John Roberts was being encouraged by his brethren, so to speak, to speak out, but I also think he wanted to provide a broader message about the Supreme Court being different and neutral and not part of this political system, but everyone listening to your show has probably followed the census case and the question of whether there'll be a citizenship question. Many of the people who, who are listening right now probably remember the very politicized case of Trump versus Hawaii over the Muslim ban last year that turned out to be a 5-4 vote conservatives versus liberals. Yeah, It looks like from oral arguments that we might have another 5-4 ruling on whether suddenly a, a census question should be added to the 2020 census, which many people believe will depress turnout and yeah. uh, keep... Hispanics and immigrants from responding.
0: While you're making predictions about the future on Supreme Court cases that are before the highest court in the land, what about some other things that people were talking about with, I think, great concern after Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, like Roe v. Wade? Do you think that Roe v. Wade is not for long?
1: I think it's going to be diminished over time. I... I'm not certain that John Roberts wants to be leading a court that outright reverses this landmark ruling, whether you like it or you don't like it, that's been around since 1973. Uh, I think that would, frankly, be you know turning the court into a very political item in an election year or right. or down the road. So I don't, I don't see him voting to overturn it outright, but I do see uh, John Roberts able to get a majority to increase the regulations on a woman's right to choose abortion.
0: Right. But that's also, it's very strange and it goes to a theme that we've been discussing and it might be perplexing to some people. But on the one hand, you would think, well, if John Roberts thinks that there's no particular right to privacy that is espoused in Roe v. Wade and he has a view of the law and a case came before him that he should vote the way his belief of the law tells him to vote as opposed to thinking about these other considerations thinking tactically and or strategically because because one one could say there shouldn't be a difference between scenario A which is John Roberts would have to be the deciding vote to gut Roe v. Wade versus a different scenario in which he would be one of you know six or seven where he would be more comfortable but not be the decisive vote. Do you follow what I'm saying? Is it, is I do. Confusing? Why is now, it, isn't that confusing to people?
1: It, it is, but I'm, I'm going to quote Clarence Thomas for all the people who are wondering, well, gosh, you're you're just presuming that they're making political decisions along with legal judicial decisions. And Clarence Thomas actually said that late in 2018 when the justices sidestepped a question that was subject to a conflicting rulings in the lower courts, and it had to do with uh, Medicaid reimbursements and Medicaid services that Planned Parenthood was providing in, in certain states and some republican- controlled states didn't want to do the reimbursements for some of the services that Planned Parenthood was providing it had nothing to do with abortion it just had to do with care for needy people and it was a question over you know who could who could actually bring a, a certain lawsuit against the state for who qualified for Medicaid but Planned Parenthood was one of the named parties and the court Denied the appeal. Justice Thomas wrote an opinion saying, essentially, you're chicken. (laughs) You don't want to weigh in on something that's very important here. He said that, you know, it only required four justices to accept the case, but five to actually rule on it. And Clarence Thomas wrote a, a dissenting opinion from the court's denial of this appeal brought by states that had lost in lower courts and said, we should weigh in when there are conflicts in the in lower court rulings. And just because this is a, a political issue with a party with reminds people of abortion, we shouldn't run from it. Now, I'm paraphrasing that part. I'm especially right. paraphrasing the part about your chicken. But that was basically <laughs> that was basically his point is that you're avoiding this just because it's politically fraught. And John Roberts might say to himself, you bet.
0: Yeah. So what is the better approach?
1: Well, I, I'm not going to sit in judgment of which
0: you're one. the chief. Ju- you're the chief justice <laughs> of your family, Joan. You already established that at the outset. So we need to hear from you on this. Point.
1: Okay, I, I actually think it might serve the country to wait on some of these issues. Things are just so fraught and tumultuous right now. I would be happy for a week or two when you know the biggest news <laughs> had to do with something you know from the Midwest yeah. rather than something from Washington.
0: I could go on with you for 100 hours. So can I ask a few quick semi-lightning round questions before I get to some personal things? Okay. All right. Should there be term limits on Supreme Court justices? No. I'm not going to ask you to explain because this is a lightning (laughs) round. If you can explain in 10 seconds. Well, let
1: me just say that that's born of everybody's unhappiness right now. I think it's it's an idea of the moment. And I think if we were ever to go to that, it shouldn't be just in the heat of the moment.
0: Okay. What about, you use the word packing, which is a, loaded term. Do we need more justices? No.
1: I think that's another thing. It's been 150 years, Preet, since Congress set the nine justice number. It's been at a high of 10 and a low of five over the years. But we've lived like this for 150 years. Let's wait and see what happens over the next couple of years before we jump to something like that.
0: There was a bill that Senator Schumer and others, our inspector, included every session of Congress that I was there, and I think before and after would sponsor in the Senate and that was to have cameras in the courtroom and there were different versions of them, one of which was specifically directed to the Supreme Court. Should there be cameras in the Supreme Court? Oh
1: this goes right to my philosophy. This is your Supreme Court. You know So that's yes. It's a yes. Okay. I'll just stop there. <laughs> yes.
0: No, okay. No, good. Um, who is the smartest justice right now? <laughs> Man. (laughs) Okay. Oh, you're saying it's a man. You're saying it's a man. No,
1: I'm going to say it's interesting. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say it's the eldest justice because the eldest is always the smartest. That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: Well, that's pretty good. Who's the most popular on the on the court?
1: I think Elena Kagan. She's definitely trying to get anybody who's going to go out of her way to go hunting with Antonin Scalia. Cross the aisle, go hunting with <laughs> Antonin Scalia after herself. Probably never even picking up a firearm. That's someone who's working on her colleagues in the spirit of Justice O'Connor.
0: She had a particular background that I always thought was suited to that kind of effort, uh, and I know her a little bit—not not a ton, but some. I think being the dean of a school, whether it's a college or a law school, she was dean of the the law school, I think you you have to balance so many things and have to make sure that you are a good listener to so many different constituencies over whom you don't actually have power because all the faculty has has tenure. I've always wondered if that made her uh, as good as she is at getting along with folks.
1: I've always thought that. I've actually thought that because, of course academic wars are so brutal over, like, nothing. And also, she was the one who really worked hard to bring one or two more conservatives up to Harvard, you know, pleasing those on the right a bit. So she's very attentive to the interests of a of a crowd. Yeah, we just were talking about someone who likes to uh, stay a step ahead of the crowd. Uh, she definitely likes to listen to the crowd.
0: Who's the best writer on the court?
1: Ooh, John Roberts is fabulous. John Roberts is an excellent writer. When he was at Harvard... You know, he did, it, did undergrad in only three years. He essentially came in at sophomore status. He immediately won awards for his writing and his history papers. He's very, very good. Justice Kagan is also good. But John Roberts, there were so many times pre, when I was writing this book where I thought, hey, if he were writing this, it'd probably be really good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do you compare his writing to Scalia's?
1: Oh, well, Scalia's was so. uh, Scalia's was much more visual. He was always uh, giving you something to see as he wrote, whereas John Roberts tends to be a little bit more literary, a little more playful. They're both fine, fine writers. I have to say, Justice Scalia would be much more overtly snide.
0: Well, we could go on and on. There's so many fascinating things to talk to you about. The book, again, is The Chief. The Life in Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. I encourage everyone to buy it and read it. Joan Biskupic, it was wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you.
1: Thanks. It was so much fun.
0: Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the CAFE team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Hey folks, CAFE recently launched something to help you keep on top of today's news cycle, the CAFE Brief. It's a free newsletter that recaps news and analysis of politically charged legal matters sent twice a week. Sign up to stay informed at cafe.com brief. That's cafe.com brief.